started, we have a very special treat here today for our Berkman Tuesday luncheon series, a little more multimedia than we usually do, um, with Peter Mnell of, of UC Berkeley Law School teaches and writes uh, a lot about copyright and is going to do for us a presentation about the year in copyright in a pretty uh, unique and engaging format and um, save a little bit of time at the end for questions. Uh, as usual, we're live streaming here today, so if you do ask a question, just be mindful you'll be um, on camera. And uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Peter. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's, it's a real pleasure uh, to be back here. Some of my roots are here, although this was a parking lot when I was last here, or, uh, as a student anyway. Uh, so this is not a standard presentation. This is something that I've been developing over the last six to eight years. Uh, the USC... Uh, law School has an IP institute. It's not actually run by the law school so much as their CLE unit, and it attracts about uh, 600 to 700 people, uh, patent, copyright, and trademark. And one of the sort of major parts of the program is to sort of boil all of patent, copyright, and trademark down into sort of these 40-minute segments. And the other thing is, when you get into the room, you've got probably 400 patent lawyers. So what's going to get them interested in copyright requires a little effort. Uh, and then you've got some trademark lawyers. You've got to, so, so this was something that was done to really try to cover the landscape, but in a way that would keep everyone in the room interested. Uh, it's also, for me, a way of capturing what I think is one of the most important issues in the creative culture, which is the human desire to engage the works themselves, to uh, in. Judge Laval's terms, to, to really transform and to, to, to get sort of the personal stake uh, in the copyright law. The idea that, that we, when we receive this knowledge, it becomes part of who we are as well. And how do you sort of balance those issues? So, so you'll see that, that this notion of transformation kind of uh, underlies the entire process. So if we may. Uh,
territory. What I came to realize, given the importance of Star Wars in this past year, is that in fact all of copyright law and maybe all of life can be told through the Star Wars narratives. And so my effort was to sh you know, really prove this argument. And here I was in a room of patent, copyright, trademark, uh, entertainment lawyers, and I needed to get their attention. And so this was the modality. So how better to do it? I mean, it's all about the merchandising. That's what Hollywood is all about. Uh, and that's what Star Wars brought to the fore. Star Wars was unique. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but, but when George Lucas uh, set about doing this, he had come out with a very successful movie uh, right out of his, you know, sort of undergrad, or right out of his film school experience. Uh, and they wanted him to make another movie like that. But he didn't want to make that. He wanted to make a science fiction movie a space travel movie, and none of the studios thought that was a good idea. They wanted him to just, you know, go and do sort of the, the nice popular stuff he had done. And they finally, uh, Fox agreed they'll pay him $10 million to do it, which is not really enough to do a movie of this scope. Uh, but he said, okay, I'll do it for that, but I want to control the merchandising rights. And they said, what? Who cares? No one merchandises. We'll give you that. And he proved them wrong. And here, as you can see, uh, we've got uh, our merchandising expert, uh, Yogurt, and uh, he tells the story of the industry. So we can see that the industry is really about uh, the t-shirts, uh, or here's one of my favorite, uh, you know, and, and Yogurt sounds a lot like someone else, uh, Bernie, what's his name? Uh, but here he is with the, I love this, the flame flower uh, children's toy. You know, now you can really feel the burn. So, so, okay, good, good. You're paying attention, you're paying attention. All right, so I wanna go back into a little of my own personal life, but it's a story about Star Wars that you'll see will help kick us off really well. So here is a f picture of the first Star Wars production. Uh, it's hard to believe that's George Lucas in the middle, but it is. Uh, but you probably recognize Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. Uh, and uh, about a decade ago, I was contacted by the folks at Lucasfilm, and they said, we need your help on this case that's unfolding in England. And the case involved some of the most iconic art of this generation. It was really the, you know, what we've come to see as Star Wars. And what I came to learn from working on this project is that a lot of what we associate with Star Wars is really the creation of a guy named Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie is an artist who lived in Berkeley. He died, sadly, a few years ago. Uh, but it turns out he was the person who George Lucas had reached out to when they were developing the whole Star Wars series. Lucas did not create the scenes. He scripted, he had a plot, but he needed someone to really bring these, these visions uh, to life. And Ralph McQuarrie created those visions. So this is one of the paintings that Ralph McQuarrie created, and as part of my work on this case, I got to go into the archive and, and was working with these in order to deal with this issue. And you'll see, it's, real, it's really a merchandising issue. Uh, so here's a contemporaneous photo from the mid-1970s of when they're developing this work. And this was sort of the snippet of that painting that would be very important to this litigation unfolding, both in America and in England. Uh, so here's another one of those paintings uh, that Macquarie comes up with. And when they went into producing Star Wars in 1975, 
They had a very tight budget. They decided to do almost all of the work in London uh, at a studio there. And as most film productions go, you do a lot of it in-house. Hopefully all of it. You hire art directors, you bring in all these people to do that work. Macquarie had provided sort of the images and they were going to produce all the costumery, all the scenes. And they were just running behind. They couldn't easily get it all done because they had to get to Tunisia, or Tatooine as we now know, uh, to start filming these, these uh, historic scenes. And so the art director knew someone who did fiberglass molding. His name was Andrew Ainsworth, and Ainsworth, you know, had a lot of time on his hand. Not many people needed fiberglass moldings. So they said, Andrew, can you come in and do these? And so he did them kind of uh, as a side project. He wasn't brought in as a full-time employee, and he did them on the side. And uh, here's, here's Macquarie with some of those images that he drew. And so who is our, our phantom menace in this case? Well, for Hollywood, it's none other than Andrew Ainsworth. Right? Because about 10 years ago, he decided that he would start selling the costumes. He had kept all the molds in his attic, and he wasn't doing so well. And he said, you know, let me just start selling. And this is the one thing George Lucas really cared about. And so, so they brought a lawsuit in the US. They got a default judgment, and they went to enforce it in England. It produced this very complicated case that goes all the way to the Supreme Court in England. And I was brought in as a US law expert on, on sort of, are these protected under US law, and it was a little complicated because as you know, we don't protect fashion, but there are cases where we protect costumes, costumes from say the Cats show and other shows. So, so I had to kind of deal with this. Now, when you go to the original Ainsworth website, you know, he's talking about himself as the originator, really the author of these works, and that wasn't quite true. You saw what he started with. Macquarie had pretty much figured it out, and what Ainsworth did was he very faithfully reproduced them in the costumes that we all know. This was the photograph of when they were picking up all of the helmets to head off to Tunisia. So it's quite an interesting story, and for a law professor, you don't get to have this kind of fun. I remember uh, my, my younger son came home from school one day, and I'm watching Star Wars movies. And he's like, Dad, don't you have like a job? And I said, well, this is my job today. And he's like, how do I get that job? Uh, he's now a computer programmer, so I think he's happy. But, uh, but in any case, uh, we had to essentially do a copyright analysis of whether these uh, infringe these works. And it was a complicated case, interesting case. But it brings us to the present. I wish this case was available because it at least confronts the issue, although the Supreme Court may consider this. There's a cert petition right now. So this is a case having to do with, as you can see, cheerleader outfits. And these cheerleader outfits uh, came up before uh, an appellate court in the past year, and the court had to decide, is there, does copyright subsist in these works? Uh, now we know from the legislative history of the Copyright Act that the cut of clothes is not protectable, but this isn't only the cut, it's also some of the patterns, although they're fairly simple patterns. They may not be original, uh, but that was the question that the, uh, the Sixth Circuit dealt with. And they talk about how this has been around. Every circuit has a case like this, the pivot point case in the Seventh Circuit, and now the Varsity Brands case. And it's a very complicated battle, but we now have some precedent on this. It may not last very long, and it says that we have to separate uh, the utilitarian features from the expressive features. What are those features? Well, the court takes kind of a narrow view of what's utilitarian. It has to wick moisture away, cover the body, withstand the rigors of motion. 
And what they do, which is, I think, the sort of linchpin of the case, is they, they say that the decorative function is not something that gets filtered out, that that can remain. And there is a modest decorative function to these very simple designs. I'm not sure these designs you know, are sufficiently original, but the question is, are they utilitarian? And you know, how you've sort of done this perhaps uh, uh, is, is artistic in some modest sense. And we know that copyright has a very low threshold for originality. So, so we now have a case, uh, yet another case in this area, that comes to a conclusion. Now, there was a dissent, and the judge uh, in the dissent, I think, makes a, a decent argument. It's saying that you know, this is a very metaphysical inquiry, and he comes up with a way of defining the function that, that would uh, allow others to. <laughs> What's how did, how did he get in here? So I had an interesting experience before I got to the room today. I was over in the restroom, and I noticed that we've got uh, Chewbacca just hanging out around the law school, and he's taking selfies. He's taking selfies. I'm thinking, well, you know, does Chewbacca have a claim to copyright in a selfie? Now, you wouldn't think that we would really have much good case law on this question. It turns out that we do, that in the past year, we had a lawsuit involving uh, Naruto. Uh, Naruto is a macaque, and he, he took a photo of himself, and PETA decided that his rights needed to be vindicated, that the photographer, the owner, not the photographer, the owner of the camera was actually circulating this photo, and in fact, PETA thought this was going to be a good test case for establishing the rights in in, in, in non-human uh, entities. And so you can see that this is increasingly becoming a problem, uh, and we now have to deal with it. I liked uh, the brief that was filed in this case. Uh, it kind of boils it down. Like, like if you're trying to teach concise brief writing, I think this is like one of the best examples we have. You know, you might have even been able to compress it a little more. And uh, the court agreed, although it's now up on an appeal. Uh, but I do think it raises an important question for us Star Wars and Star Trek fans. Uh, we are going to face a question about a new form of PETA. And we really ought to be setting up the organizations that can support these next groups. Because as we can see, uh, you know, there are lots of creatures that are going to be able to, I think, get in on uh, copyright. Uh, okay. Oh no, what's going on? The Millennium Falcon, what could that have to do with the copyright year in review? Well, uh, one might ask, is that a pictorial, graphic, or sculptural work, or is it a character? I have to say, over all of the episodes of Star Wars, I never thought it was a character. But now the Ninth Circuit tells me that, in fact, it might be. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the Millennium Falcon. It was this vehicle, the Batmobile. And so we now have a case out of the Ninth Circuit over whether or not the Batmobile is a character. And, you know, a lot of what we law, do in law is we have to fit things into different cubby holes. We have to kind of align this universe. And, you know, I would have no problem saying that that was a pictorial work in the comic books, that it's a sculptural work in the physical form. Uh, but the 
Ninth Circuit tells us it's also a character. Why? Because a guy named Mark Toll is out there creating these replicas. He sells them for about $80,000. And DC Comics didn't like it. They thought that they should get his permission. Uh, he should get their permission. And he, there were trademark concerns and other concerns that this was. And so the court gives us this new ruling. So what's going on here? Well, as you can see, the Batmobile, as we recognize it, has evolved quite a bit. And in fact, the later movies go even quite far. But for me, this is great, because I remember the original Batman series, or at least reruns of it. So, so it takes me back to the Adam West character, who recently was featured on The Big Bang Theory, if any of you noticed. By the way, The Big Bang Theory is written by people my age, because almost all of the humor is about the original Star Trek series, or things like Batman. But it's good, because now younger people are understanding our cultural reference points. But, <laughs> but you can see that the 1966 comic book version does look like the television version, uh, but it's not exact. There, there are some differences. And I think there was some concern in the district court that doing a direct copyright infringement case based on the uh, comic book might not get you to the right answer. And it was argued that it was a character that gives you kind of a broader scope. Because this vehicle was licensed, that the, the comic book series was licensed to the television production company, and they took some liberties. They didn't produce it exactly. And so this was a way to kind of allow the television version of it, or at least some broader conception of a character, to be the, the work of the plaintiff. Uh, and so we get all of this language. And what's kind of interesting, but I think somewhat of an irritation about the case, is that the judge also is from my generation. And the, the opinion is you know, replete with these references to Batman stuff. And I think it actually distracts the judge, because in the conclusion, she quotes Batman in the comic book series talking about the importance of private property. And you know maybe that was in a comic book, but it doesn't make copyright law for us. We have to be more To the Batmobile. So. Let's go. Coming batteries to power. So, you know, it obviously brings back all these emotions, and we, we can sort of relive some of that when we hear about the Batmobile. But I still, you know, you know if Naruto's not a person for purposes of the copyright, I'm not sure why the Batmobile is. Uh, but what the court, I think, was trying to do was to, to kind of squeeze this into a larger bucket, you know, to sort of stretch it into a larger bucket so that it could say that, that even if it wasn't an infringement of the comic book. It was an infringement of this derivative work. But when you study at least what's in the opinion, it's not clear that they ever licensed back those to the original you know, DC Comics. That's a standard deal point that you can put in, that you get all of those, but they didn't have it that way. So I think there are some, some real problems. And I would have rathered the court just be honest about that. And, and so I wouldn't put too much weight on it. Whoa. Where did he come from? not my favorite Star Wars character. And as you know, Jabba the Hutt has, you know, he has an eating disorder. Uh, but I don't know that Princess Leia is the right uh, solution to this. So how did he become so, so obese? Well, there was a case in the past year that perhaps answers that. And it also involves copyright. I think he was eating pea shoe sandwiches. 
So many of you have never heard of the Pichu sandwich. Well, it turns out it was the subject of a copyright case in the last year, actually in the circuit. Uh, the person who came up with the Pichu sandwich is essentially, I think, uh, fried chicken, cheese, lettuce, tomato. It's a little, seems a little derivative of the Big Mac, but, uh, you know, throwing a little cheese, uh, chicken instead of beef. But uh, they brought a claim uh, saying that you've infringed this sculptural work. Uh, some of you might be eating some copyright infringing material. I don't know about that. And the court here, I think, comes to the right conclusion. It says that, that this makes no sense. Neither the recipe nor the name fits any of the, well, this actually is an incorrect statement of copyright law. I think it's the right solution, but it turns out that we're not limited to the specific categories in 102A, but I still don't think it's copyrightable in the same way that you can't copyright you know, any functional or any, uh, you know, you, you can't copyright the recipe. You can copyright a, a flowery way of describing it. You could copyright the photograph, but it wouldn't get you very much, but you can't copyright a sandwich. Thank you very much. So let's continue on our Star Wars journey. I thought it was interesting to learn that George Lucas traveled to India to make Star Wars, and he met Tibetan, a uh, very famous uh, Buddhist teacher uh, who helped him in coming up with, and, and at least it has been suggested that the Yoda character is modeled after this character. So it's not a right of publicity case. It's not why I bring it here. It's gonna get us into another important case for this year. Some of you may know what I'm about to talk about. Uh, we had an interesting case this year in the Ninth Circuit having to do with yoga. And you can see it's directly related to Star Wars. I mean, how could it be? And so uh, uh, Bikram comes up with uh, the ultimate yoga routine. Uh, it involves this scientifically derived method, 26 poses done in a standard sequence with breathing exercises, and in the 105-degree heat of his Delhi youth. And so uh, he, in some ways, dooms his copyright case by his own book because he says that this is, in some ways, the ultimate healing process, that it's the best process, and you need to come to his expensive classes to learn it and experience it. Uh, and he has kind of popularized this routine. Now, even if it wasn't the best way to do it, he's in some ways held it out that way. And, you know, seeing some of the photographs of its practice, it's a little scary to me, but, uh, but I'll just leave that for, for others to judge. Uh, and so 
over time, he's expanding his business model and he creates the Yoga College of India and people come and they learn this method and they go off and they spread this knowledge. Uh, but he wasn't as happy about that when some of his former students were competing and opening up their own Bikram and the whole trademark and the copyright and he wanted to kind of get this whole thing stopped. He wanted it all to come back to him or have it licensed from him and that wasn't working. So it brings back a lot of familiar doctrines. We have these basic uh, uh, foundational principles of copyright law that we can't allow someone to monopolize function. And if this is the best way of healing, we wouldn't want someone to get you know, life plus 70 years of protection for that. We have all of these doctrines like the Baker versus Selden doctrine, and we don't allow you to monopolize accounting because of the form that you've uh, composed to do that, the, the, the idea-expression dichotomy. Just like the Pichu sandwich, we don't allow you to monopolize it. It may be a great sandwich. We wouldn't want you to get life plus 70 for that without proving to a patent examiner. So we also have the famous Hindenburg uh, disaster case, uh, which talks about an author who holds out to the public that something is fact is not gonna come back later and say it isn't. We have this estoppel doctrine. And I think all of these come into play when you think about what Bikram is doing. He's essentially saying that I control this idea, I've held it out as being the best way, but now I wanna say that it was completely random, uh, completely expressive and unprotectable. Uh, the Ninth Circuit was not gonna have any of that and Yoda gets the final word. All right. So we move on from yoga. Here we are, is it Tatooine? We've now reached the birthplace of the Star Wars trilogy. No, it isn't. Who is this? It's not, no, it is, it is uh, The Innocence of Muslims, a film that uh, depicts Cindy Garcia. Little did she know that she was in a movie that was going to uh, defame the Prophet Muhammad. And we wind up with another epic copyright battle. Uh, she thought she was part of Desert Warrior, nothing to do with Muhammad, but uh, it turns out uh, her scene gets repurposed into a movie in which she's saying things that are blasphemous and a fatwa goes out against her and everyone associated <laughs> with the film. And the Ninth Circuit is facing this horrendous situation, uh, and so she files a takedown notice, and she, in order to do that, she has to truthfully say that she is a copyright owner. But what's her copyright interest in this film? She was hired as an actress. Turns out they never signed any of the usual paperwork, so it's not fitting within the work made for hire uh, uh, standard, and she has to say that, that my acting is as captured on this film uh, separated out from other parts of the film is a basis for her to truthfully, uh, in good faith, uh, seek to take down this YouTube uh, film. And, you know, the film was in some ways very famous because it got tied into the whole Benghazi crisis. And, and so we're dealing with, you know, what is a hot political issue in a court that's, you know, uh, struggling to keep up with its workload. And Judge uh, Kaczynski... Uh, gets this and he says, I'm going to stop it. And it leads to this en banc review. And we get 
oh, sorry, jumps quite so quickly. Uh, Garcia uh, did not fix her acting performance in a tangible medium of expression. Uh, the author is the party who actually creates the work, the person who translates an idea into a fixed tangible expression. And so we see kind of a very formalistic approach to copyright formation, subsistence. It's, it's really the photographer. It's the person who fixes. Going back to the al-Muhammad case, it's really the superintendent of the work. That's how we start. Okay, well, part of the problem for Judge Kaczynski, who writes this dissent, he says, you know, there are lots of cases, or at least one important case in his circuit, uh, in which someone who contributed a piece to a motion picture was able to assert copyright interest. So it's not that everything gets kind of blotted out once you put it into one work. Uh, and we have signed and actually took the lead in getting an audiovisual performance treaty that is giving performers these kinds of rights. And one can argue that you know, that's an important uh, moral social justice issue is allowing performers uh, to have some kind of uh, interest in the works that they create and not just those who, who, who capture them in some form. But that's where we are. So Judge Kaczynski references one of the greatest recordings of all time, a cover of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, and he says, you know, is Jimi Hendrix not an author of his performances? And that's the problem. How do we get out of here? How do we get out of this mess? And I think there were some easy solutions here without saying that performers have no copyright interest. That there was, this was basically uh, an equitable action and there was no recognizable copyright harm. I mean, the fact that Cindy Garcia was threatened with death is a harm, but it's not a copyright harm and that was one way to resolve this. And we also have the First Amendment as a way out of here. But instead, we get this broad ruling that kind of sort of goes, I think, even beyond the al-Muhammad ruling. And I didn't have to wait long to get a case that gave me some discomfort with where this might go. So who's Robert Krakowski's, you know, kind of a relatively modest level person in the movie industry. He has a production company, uh, 16 Casa Duce, and he, uh, he options uh, this screenplay heads up, an edgy a uh, comedic story of friends leading to tragic circumstances. And he brings in uh, Alex Merkin to direct this film that they're gonna develop, but they don't see eye to eye on everything. They never get all the papers signed, uh, but they go into production. Uh, Krakowski is doing some of the casting, but Merkin is producing or directing this film, and uh, the film you know, gets sort of shot it's still gonna have to get edited and put together and Merkin starts to do that. And in fact, he puts it together and, and it wins a Best Short Film Award at the Madrid Film Festival. Uh, but uh, Kukowski says, you don't have any interest here. That as the producer of this film, I was the superintendent. I made all of the important decisions. Yet, I would think the director would, unlike Cindy Garcia, get a little more credit here. Uh, but the Second Circuit essentially follows the Ninth Circuit on this issue, and we get this you know, pretty strong ruling saying that even a director is not an author for, for purposes uh, in, this, in this situation where they don't agree. So the bottom line is make sure you agree 
with the producer before you start producing or directing. But I do think it, we, we've mucked up the law here. I don't think Congress had in mind that, that someone like Merkin wouldn't have some claim, even if Garcia's claim is rather weak. So this was a momentous year in another sense. Uh, one of the most iconic works of copyright law uh, of, of, well, the cultural industries, the song Happy Birthday to You. It's the first song we remember in our life. It's our happiest day of the year, usually, because we're being celebrated. And there was a claim to copyright in this song, and yet uh, the melody dates back to the 19th century. And the Hill sisters who created this as just kind of a wake-me-up song for their kindergarten class, uh, it's a little hard to connect all the dots, but the story has to do with the fact that they didn't sort of convert it into this song uh, in these lyrics until sometime later, and maybe that was protected by copyright. But uh, we had someone who wanted to do a documentary about it and couldn't easily get a license to use the song. And, you know, there was a claim to a 1935 copyright, which had been sort of passed down through the ages uh, and was producing a lot of money for Warner Chapel. So Jennifer Nelson files this class action. There were some other lawsuits. Uh, one of my former students was uh, the, the head of this case. And Bob Brownice, who some of you may know, very, uh, very distinguished copyright professor at George Washington University, he had written this wonderful archaeological article. I love sort of... IP archaeology, and this is one of my favorites. Uh, and so he you know, traced it. He didn't get everything. In fact, once the litigation got going, but he was a consultant and helped them to kind of peel back the layers. And there was reason to suggest that, that they had not complied with formalities even on this later new lyric version. And so the case ends up uh, going south. So here's the original. It's called Good Morning. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Uh, but but we couldn't easily trace exactly when the lyrics went in. And in fact, in fact we, we found some versions uh, in which the, the happy birthday version uh, by the Hill Sisters was published without proper notice, which is pretty bad if you're before 1978. So, so there were a lot of things that uh, were going on here. Ultimately, the court didn't decide it was not protected. It said that you lack standing because the the kind of paper trail didn't trace all the way through on the critical uh, copyright in the lyrics. Uh, but I will just say, from having looked more broadly at the case, that I do think Happy Birthday is in the public domain now, that there were examples of it being published without proper notice. Uh, and that seems to, I think, get us to the result. Now, this was a very profitable work for Warren Chapel. You could see why they weren't very happy about losing this. And in fact, in the class action, uh, they actually settled to pay something north of $10 million for past inappropriate licenses that they had acquired. Uh, so these are costly things. So I'm gonna, I didn't know how many people were in the room, so I couldn't quite do this with your group. But when I was in L.A., uh, I, had, I knew they were going to have at least 600 people. So I decided... What's the probability, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to figure out what's the probability that someone in that room of 600 people would have a birthday. And so we can figure that out. It's 1 minus the probability that no one had a birthday, which is 1 minus 364. This is what the patent lawyers were like really interested. I could keep them interested in the show by doing this. And it turns out it's approximately 80%. And lo and behold, we had a birthday that day. But I was prepared even if we didn't because it turns out that February 9th, when I gave this presentation, was my mother's birthday. 
So I thought we would celebrate her birthday anyway. She loves Frank Sinatra. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy Grandma. So it turns out, I think that's a cover of someone who sounds like Frank Sinatra, but it's my mother's favorite singer, so. All right, so let's move on to enforcement. Okay, so let me uh, introduce this next session by giving you a little more of the atmospheric. So when you're doing this in LA, there are a lot of Hollywood lawyers, but we also have our Silicon Valley lawyers who fly down. So I had to try to find some balance between the two. Uh, so we're gonna go through these cases, and you'll see, I try to be completely neutral about this. Uh, but one of the big cases of the last year, uh, a trial that unfolded in Eastern Virginia, had to do with an ISP, and the ISPs uh, like to shield themselves from liability under the DMCA Section 512. Section 512A, uh, I1A, uh, allows the shield if you've adopted and implemented a policy for terminating repeat infringers. And that's what this case against Cox was really about. And Cox says, we do have a policy like that. It's our acceptable use policy. But the problem is that in discovery, it was determined because what was going on is Rights Corp in the background was essentially out there trying to figure out why, you know, what copyrighted works were available. And when you get the IP address, you could figure out who the ISP is. And there seemed to be a lot of these things that kept coming up. It was the whack-a-mole problem. And so they brought this lawsuit, didn't know what they would find, but they found gold. Uh, so here's uh, Jason Zabeck a former employee of Cox, I suspect, uh, writing to his customer abuse operations group. And there are a lot of abuses that they were really worried about. They don't like spammers. They don't like hackers. They don't like a lot of things. And they're required, even though they don't really worry too much, about people who distribute copyrighted works. And so here he's saying, you know, we're basically facing some revenue shortfalls. We've got to keep revenue up. So let's just, you know, do a little slap on the risk of some of these folks. Uh, we'll call it, I love this, this is to be an unwritten semi-policy. <laughs> really, really. You need to get a lawyer in this organization who's going to explain to people that you don't have written, unwritten semi-policies. Okay, and so there were a variety of these emails that came to light about we're trying to keep up the revenue generating units, so let's ease off on the DMCA takedowns, but let's make sure we do get rid of the denial of service tax and all of that stuff that we really care about as a business. This is not good evidence, people. Uh, and, you know, especially when you have doctrines that impose liability for willful blindness, this could be a real problem. There was another issue in the case. It's an issue that's somewhat close to my heart as a copyright archaeologist. It has to do with what does the word distribute mean in Section 106.3 of the Copyright Act. And I was always somewhat curious about that because when you go back into the early history, it's always the right to publish and the right to vend. And then we had this sort of change in language. 
And as I was able to trace back, it turns out there was a reason they changed the word, and it wasn't because they wanted file sharers to not have to be liable. Uh, and so I had done some of that archaeology in my own work, and that was an issue that came up. There was a big split in authority over what that word means. Uh, those textualists wanted to say that you had to prove actual receipt in order for there to be a distribution. And the reason this is an issue is because prior to the internet, no one cared about distribution because there was always reproduction. But once you go to the internet and someone puts it in a share folder, you know, it's not being reproduced by them. They have a legitimate interest in doing that. But once it starts getting taken out by the Jamie Thomases or, or you know, people who are coming to Jamie Thomas's file share vote, that's where it's an issue. And so this was one of those kind of cataclysmic issues. EFF took kind of the textualist line. I found that rather ironic. You know, let's go with Scalia on this. You know, I thought, you know, what's the right answer? And it's not that I, you know, think that the RA and the MPA are right about a lot, but I just thought, you know, we ought to be able to figure this out. And so that led to my archaeological career in which I got to be another Lucas character. Uh, and so, you know, I peeled back the layers of the onion, and what I found was there was a very clear reason why they changed the word from publish to distribute. In fact, the 1961 draft of the act did say publish. Uh, but the reason they did it was because they were trying to avoid what had become a really messy area of copyright law. Uh, that the words publish and vend were going to be broadened so in a way that would avoid some of the confusion over what a publication is. What's, why does this matter? Uh, well, as the Register of Copyrights was asking, uh, you know, what's the rationale? And the ABA representative said, the rationale is that the courts have so totally turned publish into this, this uh, distorted doctrine so as to avoid injustice. And what was the injustice? Well, uh, the law doesn't like forfeiture. And as I said earlier, if you publish without proper notice, you forfeit. But, you know, when the uh, Martin Luther King estate wanted to say that the I Have a Dream speech was not published without proper notice. In fact, when people went to the mall that day when he gave the speech, the speech was not extemporaneous. He scripted it, and they handed it out to all the reporters because they wanted it to be covered, but they didn't put a copyright notice on it. And so the courts were developing these bizarre doctrines of limited versus general, divested versus invested. It was a really messy area of law, and so if you just changed it from publish to something else that they thought was broader, you avoid that problem of having to, to navigate all of that jurisprudence. And that was my argument in this article, and we'll come back to that a little later. But the court in this case had to decide whether there were direct infringers of these works that were being distributed. And they said, you know, we're not going to get into that mess. We're going to say that the fact that the Rights Corp forensic people found it is good enough or at least the jury can decide if that's circumstantial evidence, which they did. Uh, and we have this $25 million verdict now, which I'm sure has scared a lot of ISPs. Uh, and they're probably now talking about getting rid of unwritten semi-policies. Uh, but you know, this is one of the things that happened. And you know, from my standpoint, I think it's an embarrassment for Cox. They should never have had that kind of operation going. And you know, it's part of the ugliness, and it leads to these perhaps inappropriate. Now, my bigger concern, as we'll get to later, is statutory damages. I, I think that that's one of the things that has so distorted. That may be part of what's going on here, but part of the problem in a case like this, it's hard to know what's going on internal 
to a company. And in fact, if you come to my talk later at 5 p.m., I'm going to talk about whistleblower law, and that's another interesting issue, but not, not here today. Okay, so I talked, you know, I sort of had to be tough on the Hollywood people, I have to be tough on the Silicon Valley people, so this is my being uh, a little tougher on the Silicon Valley people. So one of the other big events this year is that, you know, sort of the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, someone who at, at one point in not too distant uh, history uh, was responsible for something like 8 or 10% of all internet traffic, him.com, uh, was finally uh, being pursued uh, in this court, and you know, he's always been sort of very, uh, I would say, you know, larger than life. Uh, he didn't look quite that way uh, as he was being extradited. Now, none of this has fully unfolded, but I think for the enforcement side of copyright, this was an important event of the year. That this is sort of their, you know, Osama bin Laden, you might speak of. Now, I am not going to take positions on this. I'm just saying that that for the people in the various trenches, this was a, you know, a big development. And when you look out there, you can see that there was a lot else going on on the enforcement front. Popcorn Time, which had become a very, you know, sort of uh, a mega upload uh, uh, descendant, uh, something that was being used quite a bit, uh, they pretty much got taken out by the MPAA. Uh, and then there was an interesting story that never really got to uh, fruition, uh, a company called Oris was going to create basically a popcorn time for music, and the RIA basically shut it down before it got started. So, you know, my goal in the 45 minutes that I that I have is just to to cover the landscape, and these are, I think, big developments for different pockets of this world that many of us have. So I like a lot of what EFF does. Uh, I try to be neutral about these issues. And one of the big stories that has kind of followed the last 10 years of my life has been uh, uh, Stephanie Lenz and her baby, very adorable. Uh, and what we know, and some of you, I, I stopped presenting this for a while because people got sick of it. But, but I do feel it's been long enough that we've seen uh, the dancing baby that it might be worth reminding uh, Now, of course, you recognize the Prince song in the background. How could you miss it? Unmistakable. Uh, well, it turns out Prince sues everyone, uh, the shape of his guitar, everything. He's, uh, he's out there. And, and he tells his folks at Universal Music Group, you got to take this down. This is outrageous that, that Stephanie Lenz could put up this very cute, adorable baby uh, boogieing in an almost 
inaudible way, uh, in an inaudible video so that the grandparents can see it. Uh, but Universal Music Group takes orders from their artists, or at least that artist, and they file the takedown notice, uh, and EFF gets in. And I think it was a great case to kind of vindicate uh, you know, what we ought to be trying to do is find balance in this ecosystem. And it eventually gets to uh, a decision by 2008 in the, in the district court. But the fact that I'm talking about it now tells you it's, it's been around a long time. Uh, and so the argument here was that we didn't infringe. And under Section 512F, we're entitled to recover for a false uh, uh, takedown notice. And Judge Fogel uh, found that you can't ignore fair use. In some ways, fair use is getting pushed up to the, the basic right structure. It's no longer just a defense, that it's part of understanding what is a copyright. And this is something that copyright law is still struggling with, whether fair use is really defense or whether it is part of the affirmative uh, cause of action. Uh, but we now have uh, some good law on this. So under 512, you have to file these notifications with a good faith belief. Did they have this good faith belief? Well, they didn't consider fair use. And the case, I think, creates a very strong uh, uh, view that fair use is essential to the front end. Uh, but the court didn't go so far as to say that it has to be in a, uh, uh, the copyright owners uh, wanted to have a somewhat lower standard, uh, uh, they got that. They only have to have a good faith belief. It doesn't have to be an objectively reasonable belief. I don't know that we're going to get a lot of litigation about this. Stephanie Lenz was kind of unique. And for most people, they just want to get the thing up and running. But, but we now have a standard. I think it sends a pretty good signal out to the world. All right, so a little about fair use since we're talking about the year in review. Uh, I only covered a couple of these issues. When I teach fair use, I've decided that we need to fit it into a variety of different buckets. There's what I call the conventional bucket, which is really what's in the preamble of Section 107, the idea of criticism, comment, news reporting, uh, parody, I think, fits that. But what we've seen out of the Second Circuit over the last decade is a bunch of cases, uh, Blanche v. Coons, uh, the Graham Archives case, and the Kerry, where essentially it's the context in which the work is prevent presented that is creating the transformation. And we have with us this year, again, in the prior years, I've talked about Richard Prince, but he's back. Uh, last year, his story had to do with uh, Patrick Carew, uh, in that case, ultimately resolved. It had to do with these uh, sort of coffee book photographs that get blown up and put in a somewhat bizarre set of images that sell for a million dollars. This year, it's about these Instagram uh, photos where uh, Richard Prince takes the entirety of the photo and just by blowing it up is able to offer it for $100,000. It's a rather remarkable skill. Uh, but I have to say, when I was looking out at all of this, I found a wonderful Star Wars image as well. So it really is everywhere. Now, uh, the author, the Suicide Girls, who, who took these photos, they actually created this system where they'll sell it for $90 and donate that to EFF. So it's kind of an interesting uh, turnaround there. Uh, so we may see that case this year. I know there's a pro bono uh, case being brought in order to vindicate those rights. One of my favorite routines growing up was the Abbott and Costello, who's on first. It's 
I could have listened to it over and over again. It's just a nice play on words, uh, very, very amusing. And we have a case this year involving that. So there's a new play on Broadway called Hand to God. It involves this guy who has a somewhat alter ego in a puppet. And as part of the scripting of the puppet, they actually recreate uh, a segment of the Who's on First Routine. Now, for someone of my generation, that's a very sort of powerful way of communicating because you know, you're able to kind of use something that we're familiar with and to sort of tweak it in a way that kind of brings out. Now, it wasn't precisely the way Alan Costello did it. It had a lot of the banter, but it was with the vocalization of these different alter egos, the, you know, the puppeteer and the puppet. And so this comes up before Judge Daniels in the Southern District of New York. And I think he struggles with it because they did take, you know, pretty exactly what that scripting was. But he says that, that this was transformed in the way it was presented. He concludes that it is fair use. We might get an appeal in this case uh, this year. Uh, the other thing, of course, that the Berkman Center is particularly interested in, and I'm particularly interested in, is what I call the functional bucket. These are all of these copyright fair use cases that are really not so much about commenting or doing it. It's just that we're going to essentially use the data. We're going to use the metadata. We're going to sort of, uh, we're going to, archive and, and create search. And this is what Google is built on. And the big Google Books case finally came to an end. Actually, just yesterday, I think the Supreme Court uh, denied search. So, so this case you know, had been around. I wrote an article about it, I think, in 2005. So, so I've lived through it. Uh, and I think we get you know, a pretty clear, pretty logical uh, uh, solution. I would have liked Congress to weigh in early on and just say, this is not infringing activity, and this serves you know, very important preservation and archival purposes. But now we have a fair use decision by none other than Judge Laval, who brought us this transformative label. And he now gets to write, in some ways, the final chapter of at least the Google Books search. That was rather poetic. I didn't plan that. I'm going to go with that. OK, so we have another case that brings up these issues. And I particularly liked uh, the setup for this case because it turns out it's one of the best technologies of recent times. It's one that I came to really adore uh, through The Daily Show. How is it The Daily Show every day would have like all these news clips of that day all organized and put together to show you know, how bizarre the media was or how bizarre Washington was? Well, they were using this media monitoring service called TV News. And what they were doing was essentially just sucking in all these broadcasts, creating you know, uh, you know, scripts of them. And so you could Boolean search all of that information. And so Fox News, which has a competing media monitoring for their own stuff, didn't want this going on. A number of other media companies joined them. And they brought this lawsuit. And TV Eyes is saying, you know, this is fair use. Uh, what we get is kind of the Solomonic judgment out of Judge Hellerstein. Uh, he essentially says the archiving function is fair use, but the email sharing, downloading, date and time search are not. I think there may be some further tweaking that goes on in the, in the appellate court. But I, I, what I like about it is we rarely get a fair use case where there's some sort of division of activity, where you might be able to perceive a line being drawn. And he was saying, you know, there are ways of, of trying to make those judgments. Whether his are exactly right, a little hard to say at this stage. So let's move on to our Washington report. This is 
an increasing part of what we do in copyright law, and I, I think it's good. I think copyright really needs to get reexamined, reexamined seriously. The 76 Act is pretty old, given the fact that it was written almost entirely prior to 1965. So when we say that it's old, it's a lot older than you even think. It was because of cable television that it took another 11 years. And so we've got things like the anti-circumvention provisions, which are really sort of classic Washington lawmaking. It's regulation. We have these cases involving uh, uh, circumvention or encryption. And you know, the law deals pretty well with uh, you know, the kind of the, the standard versions. But once you get into garage door openers and printers, that's where the statute doesn't really track uh, how the world has evolved. The courts have resolved some of those issues favorably, but now they come up a little more easily in the context of these triennial reviews. Every three years, the copyright this has now become a major aspect of what clinics do and other uh, parts of our society. So uh, part of the problem with this regime is that you have to renew every three years. And so what I've been tracing out over the years teaching this is just how sort of different exceptions you know, have gone. Some of them have been abandoned because no one kept them there. But we would probably be better off just allowing them to stay and shifting the burden of proof. And hopefully that will happen. Uh, but this year was a triennial review. We had, in 2012, dealt with the iPhone jailbreaking issue. Uh, initially, it was out. Then it was back in. Uh, we got the White House and the FCC to weigh in. They say iPhone's fine, but not iPads. Very confusing. Very technical. Uh, I mean, it's a total headache for any of us who try to work in these areas. And so what I've done here, and I realize you can't easily absorb it, you can just see how active this area has become. And as we get into the Internet of Things, this is going to become increasingly important. And I think this is just a great area for young lawyers to be thinking about. You know, cars are now software copyright devices. I mean, it's, it's really quite fascinating. And I think a lot more work is going to get done through this process than through judicial... <laughs>
uh, now that we have technologies that allow us to do what we naturally want to do, which is truly engage the art, uh, copyright has to adapt to that. And I, I think back when I, I look at sort of the young people and the young artists and, and how this technology is, is so charismatic that, that we're, at least the people in the policy circles, don't really understand the, you know, the desire and the value of doing this. And it brings me back to another time. This is my other Bernie reference. Stephen Stills' song, which is one of my sort of greatest memories of early youth, uh, captured this, this important social change that, that unfolded in the late 60s, early 70s of, of, you know, hearing sort of the younger generation. And I think part of the problem with courts and with administrative processes is they have a hard time channeling because young people aren't typically very important. We're learning that today, as most young people can't vote in the New York primary because they didn't think about it two years ago before. But, you know, these are the kinds of issues that I think ought to be at the center of stage. So, so I looked fairly comprehensively at the history of mashup music and, and, and tried to trace out what was going on. I got to know people in the DJ community. And what I learned is that most of these people are very respectful and appreciative of the music that they're mashing up and the artists they're working with. In fact, they would love to be able to share whatever value they can derive from it. At the same time, uh, you know, they don't want to have to go through lawyers and licensing to get this done, that, that they would like there to be some system where they could do it and the value would get distributed in a fair way and they would not be constrained by lawyers. And so that led me to believe that, that there might be solutions short of everything's legal or nothing's legal. Because when I would appear at these hearings, that's the only two views being presented. And both people, both groups took the view that Congress should do nothing. And I thought, no, why should Congress do nothing? I think we want to make it easy. We don't want to hire, hire lawyers when we want to do whatever we want to do. So what is it that I want to do? Well, I want to mash things up. And my, my muse, my favorite, uh, radio commentator, none other than Ira Glass, and my vision for life is to make this my American life, that we each have this capacity, and to try to sort of get at the roots and the morality of copyright requires us to sort of dig down through these layers and determine, you know, what copyright does well and where it doesn't do it well, and I came to realize that we're asking fair use to carry a tremendous burden in the mashup area, that, that I, I don't think when you take, you know, sort of two minutes of a Beyonce song and you put it in the middle of your mashup, that that would meet at least many juries' views of whether that's fair. And yet, you know, one of my favorite Girl Talk songs does that. And, you know, I thought, okay, I get it. But turns out Greg Gillis, he would be okay contributing to Beyonce or the songwriter, but not through a lawyer, not through this channel. And so I see as a completely 
complementary approach to this issue of giving mashup artists the opportunity to just file some documents saying, here's what I'm using, here's how I'm using it, give me my compulsory license, as we do with a cover license. And in fact, I think it would have the effect of completely insulating fair use because no one sues over cover licenses. I mean, we routinely, I mean, if you watch The Voice or any of these shows, they're all based on the cover license. It's happened for over a century. When you think about All Along the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix, he didn't have to get Bob Dylan's permission. He did it. And Bob Dylan now performs it in Jimi Hendrix's version. I mean, that's the beauty of this kind of freedom. So if we really want freedom, I think we have to take the lawyers out of the equation and let the you know, system work through kind of mechanisms that are available to a 17-year-old sitting in his bedroom. The other issue that's been a hot topic in this recent policy debate is how we're going to deal with statutory damages. And in my view, statutory damages is the linchpin of copyright reform. That that's what drives the wedge in every one of these litigations. I mean, the YouTube litigation, it was ridiculous. You weren't gonna get $12 billion. The Oracle case, maybe you will. I don't know about that. We can talk about that. But, but certainly, you know, it didn't make any sense, but because you had 79,000 works and you are asserting willful infringement and potentially 150,000, I mean, it was crazy. And Judge Stanton would have none of it. But it ended up producing some really, I think, treacherous law in which courts did not read statutes very honestly. And we get this ridiculous situation in which every case, the juries are coming back with ridiculous verdicts. And we're, we're all wringing our hand. And I look at it as just a basic policy issue. Copyright has kind of moved to a period in which we're no longer worried about enforcing public performance rights in bars and restaurants. We're, we're focused on this thing called the internet. And it makes no sense. And the Silicon Valley people obviously agree. They don't want to see these ridiculous. But my point is that the Hollywood people need to see that they're killing their own system, that judges hate it, juries are unpredictable, uh, and essentially, if you want to get to the promised land, you're going to have to build a copyright system that is not a lottery system. And so this is something that I sort of took as, as one of the policy reform issues. And I'll say that the, the, the white paper out of the Commerce Department, I think, does a good service here. It doesn't get you all the way there, but they basically say statutory damages are out of control. Having that in a government document will, I think, be very powerful. And I think what we're seeing is a shift from Hollywood controlling the Hollywood agenda through the Copyright Office to the Patent Office emerging as perhaps a little more tech-friendly. Uh, but that, I think, is a big development. Now, I will say that uh, the Copyright Office was also involved in that issue I mentioned earlier, whether or not there's this distribution, whether the distribution right requires an actual receipt. And the Copyright Office did these set of hearings. I was at the hearings. I got attacked. I always get attacked. That's the one constant. And they actually came to the conclusion that Congress probably did intend that you didn't have to have receipt. Now, I'm willing to say that that's on the table. We ought to rethink those questions. But I'd rather rethink it through the statutory damages lens. All right, so let's move on to our final act. Of course, it's a movie theater. We need our coming attractions. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we'll get there. So one big case, leave the lights down, is we're going to hear another Supreme Court case involving Kurt Sang, and this is about attorney fees. Uh, it's not nearly as explosive as the issue the Supreme Court dealt with earlier, but you know we might get a different standard. Who knows? 
uh, not that interesting. We had this interesting litigation uh, over the last year, which will be appealed this year, involving the Blurred Lines case. Uh, we have, in that case, just a remarkable, I think, perfect storm. We've got admissions by the parties that they based the song on uh, another song. We've got really murky standards. We have great experts on one side, horrible experts on the other. Uh, and we got juries, and juries like Marvin Gaye rather than a fairly uh, coked up uh, Robin Thicke. I don't think it was coked. <laughs> I think it was Vicodin. But, you know, that's not how we should make copyright law. Now, another big thing that happened over the last couple years that's going to be important is that we have this litigation over uh, the, uh, the Raging Bull screenplay. And the Supreme Court, in a rather remarkable decision, decided that latches does not really apply to copyright law. We're just going to go with the three-year statute of limitations. And if you continue to sell these goods, someone can come in even now, after 20 years, uh, and there's no latches defense. It's very narrow. They're like, it has to be you know, a very narrow exception. And so why is that important? Well, you combine the Blurred Lines case, which is not, as I think many people fully understand the facts in the case, turns out that the witnesses for the plaintiffs were not very persuasive. Uh, and you know the music issues are complicated. Uh, and whenever you have juries, it's going to go with who the jury likes in a music case. That's just what we know. And so we have a case this year, which brings me back to my roots. Uh, some of you may have been hearing about this. Uh, uh, so it's the greatest. The defendant is the greatest rock and roll song in history, but they toured with Randy California and Spirit. In fact, Spirit was the opening act. So a step down A minor, that's what's there. And that's what's here. Now, do I think this is, whoops, not quite ready for this. No. We're going to come back. I don't want to, you know, that one's good. But the, the point that I'm trying to make here is just that, you know, we're going to allow a jury to decide the history, you know, the, this iconic case thanks to Petrella, and that will, I think, get a lot of attention this coming year. And I will say it's, it's a good case for lawyers. Uh, it's got a lot going on there. So, so let me uh, just take you to our final chapter here. This we can all agree on.
That's the year. Thank you, Peter. I think just in the interest of time, because we're going to get bumped out of this room shortly, we may end it there. And if you don't mind sticking around for a little bit to I'm happy to answer questions, that would be great. Thank you again, Peter. It was terrific. Okay.